This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is In the Workplace on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here are Professor Peter Capelli and Dan O'Mara. Hey, folks, welcome back to the show. I'm Peter Capelli, Professor of Management here at the Wharton School, and with me is no one. I have no co-host today. Dan is at the spa having, we think, a combination of ear candling and uh, the leech. Uh, I think it's a leech treatment he's having uh, today. We're not sure which one. We'll find out next week when he comes back. To kick us off today, we're going to talk about open work plans, open work spaces. And here's where I need your help. If you folks are working in one of these, we would like to hear what you think, especially if you've been in one of these organizations where you've transitioned to one of these. That is, you used to have offices, or at least you had cubicles, and now we've moved toward more open workspaces where there are tables and, you know, you can just reach out and talk to your neighbors. you see any advantages to this? Uh, do you hate it? Uh, what do you think, right? We'd like to know what's it like. I confess I've, I'm trying to think if I've ever worked in an open office. I think I have. Uh, and I'll tell you my sense on this, but we'd like to get your experience, especially if you've just transitioned into one of these. And to help us think through this, it's great to have Ethan Bernstein with us. Ethan is a professor at the Harvard Business School, and he and his colleague, Stefan Turban, have written an interesting study, a real experiment, that looks at what happens when you introduce an open workspace, what does it do to people's collaboration? Does it really improve it or does it hurt it? So we're going to find out the answer to that question in just a bit. But before we do that, we're going to talk with Ethan about the general question here. So, Ethan, welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. Uh, Our pleasure. Nice to have you here. Let me ask you first the usual question on this, and that is, did you have a personal motivation? Did you have a bad experience with an open office or something that made you want to look at this? Why why did you turn to uh, to this topic? It's a fascinating oh, wish, one, by the way, but, you know. I wish I could give you a, a, a personal experience that drove it all, but I think it was actually driven by the personal experience of all the folks who contacted me when, um, when they saw some of my earlier research on increasingly open and transparent workplaces and its impact on employee behavior and performance, mm-hmm. and, uh, and said, so what about, the, what about the offices? And I said, well, I haven't done that study yet. Said, oh, well, okay. Do it. So okay. that was the motivation. Okay. Well, that sounds like a good one. So let me see if we could back us up a little bit here. Um, my sense of the history of this, if you looked at modern workplaces uh, in the last century, so starting about 1900, is that they um, used to be really messy and small, and then they got big, uh, but they got big and open. Um, so my sense of even office work after scientific management came along, uh, is that they were pretty open workplaces around 1920. Secretarial pools were big and open, and um, even small manufacturing where people could do things at their station. You know, it was one great big giant room. Um, first, am I right on that? And uh, and if not, don't tell me um, if I'm right on that. Um, why do you think that that was. What do you think we learned from that? Do you have any sense of that? Well, you know, uh, there, are, there are probably, and I'm not an expert on the history of the open office. Actually, there are a couple books and, and um, things that have been written out there you might want to include on the website when, when we're done, uh, others. 
but my my understanding is is fairly close to yours um and the the changes we've had over time including back then were driven in part by the kinds of work we were doing and okay. in part by the kinds of technologies we had right. um you know the kinds of work being more manufacturing focused mm-hmm. um, kinds of technologies you know until we had the kinds of lighting systems hvac systems etc that we had uh by the middle of the century we couldn't have the tall buildings that and, and the kinds of office spaces that we had um, come come sort of more towards the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. Mm-hmm. That's probably true. Uh, I have a sense that in white collar work, where you saw these pictures, right, of of offices, and particularly where women were working in the office. And uh, a lot of people believe that public schools were m- basically mimicking these factory sort of operations. It would be, you know, one big open office and a boss who was walking around checking everyone. And I have a feeling that part of the open office plan in those days was it made it easier to watch you and that that's kind of why they were doing it. What's your sense? It makes me glad I wasn't working back then. Yeah, I, I yeah. I became an academic, so I yeah. would have a boss watching me, although I, maybe my dean would like to be at times. Yeah, right, right. Uh, yeah, so I think that's kind of what was going on, and we moved away from that. So when did, do you know when we started to get, at least in the white-collar workforce, people started to get offices or at least cubicles? Do you have a sense of when that so, started? Uh, so here's here's my point in time, um, you know, research that I'm most familiar with, research out of HBS, when we did the Hawthorne studies, which many will know at the, at the Hawthorne Works. And one of the things, if you recall, they did in, in that study, which, which people cite for the fact it's the Hawthorne effect, uh, totally different meaning, uh, the idea that when people are being studied, they act differently. And so we had to find ways of studying people without, without triggering that effect, or at least for correcting for it. But part of that was that uh, the people who were studying the workers at Hawthorne uh, we're interested in the way in which their relationships, their behaviors, the, the human nature of their work um, affected their ability to get good work done. And they'd taken six, seven, eight people, it depends on which part of the study you're looking at, and put them in a more private space um, and, and to study them, really, quite frankly. Yeah. But mm-hmm. some of what they found at the time, at least if you look back in the archives, wasn't just this Hawthorne effect, but the fact that they worked better when they were in a more private space. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, interesting. And I don't know that that mm-hmm. I don't know that you could say that was the cause, but that was probably somewhat of as we thought about the behavioral aspects of organizational behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, the, mm-hmm. that um, that probably had had part and parcel with the timing of of the change in office spaces as well. Yeah, and by the way, if you are a management history junkie, which probably refers to maybe two people in the listening audience, but if you are and you go on YouTube and you look for Western Electric Studies, uh, the Bell System, uh, which inherited all that uh, uh, information from these studies which were done in 1920s, is that right? Started in nineteen late 1920s, early 1930s. That's exactly right. Uh, anyway, they filmed all this stuff, and uh, the Western Electric folks produced little mini documentaries, and you can see them online. And uh, it tells you a lot about how factories used to work in those days. Here's one thing that's kind of interesting. None of it seems very surprising, except that they were more paternalistic than you would have thought. You know, they had, uh, for women, for example, they had sports leagues, and the idea was actually to teach women to be more assertive, believe it or not. 
Uh, and they had leadership development programs that were pretty open, all kinds of interesting things like that. But let's get back to offices here. And uh, Ethan, let me tell you my personal sense of, of this question of open offices is that it seems to be one of those hot-button topics that virtually everybody has a uh, an opinion about, and usually a strong opinion, right? So when you mention this to people or when people are talking to you about it, what do you hear when you say to them, I will work on open offices? I bet you hear something. <laughs> what, 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 kind of, what kind of response you get from them? I, um, well, I will say at first that um, I, I've gotten Adult, there's been a lot of interest in this article, much more so that we, we thought, and we can get to this in a moment, we thought we were writing a methodology piece, quite yeah. frankly. Yeah, okay. um, but, uh, yeah, strong feelings, um, either strong feelings in the positive or strong feelings in the negative, yeah. which, which is quite frankly why you know, Stephen and I went into this, and I don't think we had, per se, a hypothesis of how it was going to turn out. Okay. Um, because there talk to half the people would say open offices are terrible for interaction and collaboration. Mm. The other half would say they're great for it. That's how mm-hmm. we get our collisions. That's how we yep. get our, um, our huddles. That's yep. how we get people to talk to each other. Yep. And, and it seemed, I mean, it seems like a question that needed research. Yeah. That's how we ended up there. But yep. we're gonna, we're, I'm holding out the results way. of your study here because we're trying to create tension on the show. So we're going to okay. wait till the very end to tell them what you, uh, what you found in this. But let me uh, try out a little hypothesis on you. And Again, let me see if we can alert listeners. And, folks, we need help here because Dan is not here today, and I can't wake him up to ask him a question. So here's our number, 1-844-942-7866 or 1-844-WHARTON. And give us a buzz if you work in an open office, particularly if you've moved from one uh, where you had a real space to an open office or the other way, and what did you experience? So, anyway, Ethan, here's my sense, that this reflects kind of a deep political um, orientate uh, divide between people that there's a kind of liberal conservative split as to how people see this and uh, a lot of people really take glee in the idea that uh, open offices are are failing uh, the perception whenever they hear a story about companies coming back from open offices they just go yay and it's the same group that likes uh, to hear stories about work from home failing uh, and there's another group that loves to hear when companies are moving toward open offices and loves to hear uh, when people are allowed to work more from home. And I have a feeling this reflects the underlying political orientation of people, which reflects a disposition. Do you think people need to be watched and controlled, for example? Or do you think um, people are basically good and in case of an open office, they really want to interact with each other and be social? Uh, so I, I, it's a really interesting question because at least I noticed this big divide between people, which does seem to sort of break down for political grounds, at least on <laughs> my simple interpretation. You notice anything on that of the people who are saying, I love it and I hate it? Oh, what an interesting perspective. Actually, it, it, uh, it aligns to some extent my experiences with uh, with something you know a lot about uh performance management systems and the way people see the old and the new there, too. Yeah, probably the same thing, right? Probably the actually, same thing. I, yeah. I assign your article uh, with Anna Tavis in my, in my classroom, actually. Uh, oh, but, nice. You know, it's interesting. Nice. I, 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 I don't know if I would have thought of it as a political thing. I, I, there is certainly some of, of, of it is a traditionalist versus a we really want the sort of new workplace, yeah. future of work, mm-hmm. a futuristic approach. 
But I, I think it's more, um, at least my experience has been, it's more around the lines of I work in one and I hate it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, I, I have painful stories of, you know, lately it seems like people eating tuna is the example we use, but uh, <laughs> people doing things they shouldn't do in the open offices, which gets me distracted from my work. Yeah. It's unpleasant for me to work there. Yeah, yeah, um, I can see that. And then on the other hand, there is the... I'm a real estate manager or a landlord, and I've sunk a lot of money into some open offices, and I'm really not terribly happy about the fact that mm. there's a Harvard study out there that says mm-hmm. oh, there that you it's go. not doing what, what I promised it to do. And, and, you know, quite frankly, with deference, some deference to them, they probably heard from some, from some executive suite individual, we need to find a way to take 4,000 people and stack them so we have space for 7,000. Oh, ah. okay. And so mm. I think... I think there is there is this um, divide between those who designed the space, perhaps under constraints yeah. that they didn't themselves choose, hmm. um, but tried to sell the space as being both good for cost and good for collaboration. Oh, interesting! And yeah, those yeah. those who actually mm-hmm. suffer in the process of working in the space, and some of them love it, and some of them yeah. don't, and so. I, I, that's how I would draw my little Okay, device. yeah, interesting uh, story. Anyway, we've got one of those folks here who can give us their view. Patrick's calling from Canada. Patrick, where in Canada are you? Since it's a big place. Uh, yeah, I'm looking in Halifax, uh, Nova Scotia. Okay, terrific. And and tell us what your experience was. You've moved, I guess, yeah? Yeah, so we're, we're kind of a, a fairly large startup now. We're similar, almost kind of like the caravan of Canada. Okay. Uh, we're called Clutch, but um, we... We've gone to an open workspace. Uh, we were always kind of an open workspace. We started as a smaller company, but now that we have about 20, 30 employees in the office, we moved to a larger office and okay. decided to really kind of embrace it. So there's a huge open workspace. Um, no one had, there's no offices. Ah. Uh, like I'm the head of retail mm-hmm. for the company, so I sit with all our car concierges, marketing team, so everyone's kind of in the same workspace. And okay. from my experience, at least, I've, I've noticed just way more of a, a family, a team vibe in the office everyone seems to kind of be happier everyone's not kind of separated from each other um, okay communication's easier and i find just all the departments where it's open in the office right everyone can kind of see what other people are working on give feedback i mean we have slack and things like that so people can message and, and everything mm-hmm. in the company but i find it just the open workspace just kind of allows everyone to kind of see what other people are doing and how that's affecting each part of the business. Okay. Um, so that's kind of a big part that I I really like about it. And then it also kind of eliminates that hierarchy feeling, right? There's not kind of your boss sitting in an office with his door shut the whole time. Everyone's there and everyone's kind of working together as a team. Yeah. And maybe that's um, something to do where it is a startup and it's a lot of younger staff and, and maybe just a business we're in. So it may not work for everyone, but mm-hmm. I've found where at least everyone's kind of, it is a, a tech uh, company and everyone's, kind of young, enthusiastic, and, and, and willing to work hard and, and work together. And, and just kind of, a, I find it builds the team better. Okay, really interesting. Patrick, anybody eat tuna uh, routinely there and stink the place up, or is that uh, that has not happened? That, uh, <laughs> not, on a, not on a consistent basis, but it, it definitely has happened. Uh, sometimes people are heating stuff up. But, yeah. Uh, like I said, that can always be avoided with a, with a lunchroom, but I mean, no one's really... Uh, freaking out about it. Yeah, 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 that's interesting. Um, Ethan, let's go uh, ask you a question uh, here on this one. So Patrick was saying, you know, startup uh, and, um, you know, just getting going place, it seems like people really love it. Is there something about a stage of people's careers or a stage of companies where this works particularly well? 
Uh, you know, I, it's, I haven't done the research on that. It's a good question. Um, I'd have to follow the anecdotes and. and um, That's all we do, Ethan. We just we're just making it up. So just give us your best guess. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so. No, I, but but you know, so there were a couple of things actually. Actually, I'd be curious to know from Patrick. Um, you know, he mentioned all of the electronic tools they use to communicate. Yeah. And, and so, to some extent, foreshadowing foreshadowing some of the discussion the discussion results we'll have later. I'd be curious how much of the collaboration as they go from a smaller startup to, geez, I think, like 20 or 30 people now and even larger, how much of the collaboration in the open space where you don't have hierarchy and you don't have, um, you can see everybody's work, how yep. much of the collaboration is, is um, face-to-face as opposed to electronic? Yeah, yeah. Does it change that? And we're going to find the answer to that in just a second. Let me remind people what we're doing. We're talking about open office workspaces with Ethan Bernstein, a professor at the Harvard Business School. And we'd also like to hear from you if you've had the experience of moving to or from an open office space. What was it like? What'd you notice? Here's our number again, one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So, uh, Ethan, let's maybe get to your study here a little bit, and maybe you could tell us about how you did it, because it's pretty notable. It's different than the kind of studies we often see. Um, tell us what it was involved in doing the study. Yeah, so we... Um we wanted to do this in a, you know, I, maybe Patrick will appreciate this as a, as a startup, in a, in a sort of 20, 20, 2010, 2015, 2020 kind of way, not in a 1970s, 1980s kind of way, because there were actually some fantastic studies done on this years ago. Oh, really? All survey okay. Based. okay. Oh, yeah, there were, there were, Peter, there were a number of, of studies um, throughout the 70s and 80s when open offices, again, hit a peak on how people experienced them, but they were all survey-based, so all self-reported. Okay. Most of the DVs were satisfaction uh, or stress um, or other kinds of self-reported DVs. Okay. Um, and, and we thought, well, you know, we now live in an age in which we can track everything. We can track people's electronic communications. We can track their face-to-face communications. Um, we can basically track their interactions at work, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be interesting to know, ignoring their perceptions, their pluses and minuses that we just described, there are some people who you suggest, and I think I would agree, politically go, lean one way or the other, without taking those into consideration. Could we just track the interactions before and after one of these moves and see see what happens? Okay. Um, so let me pause uh, for just a second here. You're going to do this in a company. What were you expecting in terms of what prior research had Found, as I recall, there was kind of a boomlet, right, in talking about how getting rid of boundaries just sounded like a terrifically useful thing to do, cutting down hierarchy, all that kind of stuff. Um, what did the prior research lead you to believe you might find on this? Well, as as you know, um, in our field of organizational behavior, we have we have some folks who be considered micro OB folks or psychologists, and some people who be macro OB folks and psych or sociologists and there was actually kind of a divide okay. um, in the sociology world where they spent a lot of time thinking about networks. Um, I think you, it would be fair to say proximity or propinquity um, drove interaction was a, a key finding of previous studies and a hypothesis that they would put forward. So people closer together, co-located in the kind of space that Patrick described, create that sort of non-hierarchical family setting where everyone can see everyone else, mm-hmm. uh, and you should get more interaction. They should People should just walk up to each other and, and talk, and maybe some yep. of that would be intentional, and others would just be, I got up and 
Patrick got up at the same time. We ran into each other, and we decided we should have a conversation. Yep. We created new ideas as a result. Now, that sounds like the person-on-the-street view, right? I mean, if you get rid of offices, you don't have to knock anymore. Uh, you can see if somebody's in there. Um, just easier physically to do, right? So I imagine there was a, a lot of that drove the open office movement, my sense was. So what's the other? there's another side of this. So what are the psychologists saying? Yeah, I suppose the person on the street has another view if the person on the street spends a lot of time sitting in an open space, yeah. with headphones on all the time, yeah. uh, looking at their screen very intently because they want, because everyone can see them, Patrick mm-hmm. looking at them, mm-hmm. um, and want, they want to look busy, they want to look in- intensely focused, and so they do, and so no one bothers them because you don't want to disrupt a person who yep. looks intensely busy. Um, and, and that there's actually quite a bit of stress involved, particularly for people who might be more introverted or more... Um, of a different kind of personality. And so that actually, that space becomes the opposite. It becomes a very hmm. um, coercively quiet space mm-hmm. um, as, as a result of that from a more social psychologist perspective. And there's, okay. there were a number of studies on the ways in which the having too big of an audience, let's say, okay. feeling always on stage can have a, a quieting impact or a um, really dampening impact on the kind of face-to-face communication you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, drumroll, tell us uh, what you found in these studies. You did two, right? You repeated them. Uh, So tell us what you've, first of all, what you were measuring, and then what'd you find? So we used these, we used these badges that people would wear around their neck that um, had lots of sensors in them and were able to record face-to-face interactions. This is uh, through a company here in Boston called Humanize, mm-hmm. uh, whose co-founder actually, uh, he, uh, who's um, Ben Weber, he actually and I actually went to our doctoral program at the same time, so oh, okay. for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, we used those uh, to track face-to-face interactions. So can we just stop for and a second? Because uh, yep. people who have never seen these probably are surprised by these. You can actually track how close you are to people and who that person is. And with these badges, uh, I've, I've seen them. Um, uh, can they also tell whether you're talking or not or just how close you are? Yes. So they record, they record, they record. sound as well, but they do not record the content of voice, only the tonal quality oh, okay. and, ah. and the presence or absence. So okay. If you were to think about what you would need to know that you've had an interaction You'd probably want some kind of spatial cue. You'd yep. want to know that you and the other person or other people were close. Um, you'd want to perhaps know that you were facing the other person, which you could get from an IR sensor. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And then you'd want to know that there's some kind of pattern, hopefully reciprocal pattern, of voice from one person, voice from another, that looks kind of like what we're doing right now. I talk, you talk, I talk, you talk for a certain period of time until neither one of us does so or until we break one of those um, those criteria and okay. that's the end of the interaction. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's what you're measuring. And so, uh, anything else before we get to the drum roll about what you found? And we captured and we captured all electronic communication as well, in this case, email and, and instant messaging. So we okay. can see um, individuals' digital communications with each other. So we okay. got both digital and, well, maybe call it analog, but uh, face-to-face. Okay. Uh, and so in in these uh, offices, was there actually a change going on? Tell us what the little experiment was here going on. In both cases, they were going from what you would probably describe as more of a cubicle-oriented space or, or a bounded space of some kind okay. um, to more of a space that sounded akin to what Patrick uh, described, right. open, 
there were still it was not it was not sort of the we're not going back to the 1920s here to where our discussion began it was not starkly open they weren't going extreme these were well-designed spaces um, mm-hmm. at, at you know top companies yep. um, but but the move was towards a more open environment um, in which you might have you know the long in one case long tables with with um, chairs and and people facing each other, or at least facing open spaces, um, might have neighborhoods, and the question would be how big were the neighborhoods, but roughly speaking, um, you'd have what I think people would identify today as a well-designed open office. Okay. And, drum roll, uh, what did you find when they made that move? So we saw, uh, and as I said, we weren't sure what the answer would be, um, we saw a decline in face-to-face interaction in oh. favor of... Hmm an increase in online or electronic communication. Okay. In hmm. general, mm-hmm. uh, people took their face-to-face communications and put them into email. Yeah, uh, which is remarkable. Let's just repeat that, right? So you move to an open office, and people actually don't have as much face-to-face communication. They're more willing to talk to each other, communicate with each other, as if they're on the other side of the country. That's quite surprising, right? Uh, quite quite well, and- interesting. And so two things, one that will accentuate that and one that will, um, that will uh, caveat it. So the caveat is, uh, you know, you, could, you weren't on the other side of the country, you could see them. Yes, right. So I, knew, right. I knew that Peter was sitting at his desk, <laughs> right. um, and I could have gone over and started a conversation with Peter, but because I knew Peter was sitting at his desk and I didn't want to bother the people around him, and he looked kind of intent at the, doing what he was doing, I thought, well, I'll just send him an email. I know he's going to get it because he's sitting there. Mm, okay. Hmm. Hmm. So a, a little different than the um, across-the-country um, piece, but, but I will say, you know, for all the things that didn't surprise me about this study, what shocked me was the degree to which we saw this happen. So yeah. Yeah. face-to-face communications declined by 70%. 70 um, Seven zero. Seven zero, roughly, in both wow. of these two studies, independent studies of, of Fortune 500 um, company headquarters. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the electronic communication sort of came back up to, to, to substitutes. But that's a huge effect, yeah. much, bigger than, yeah, yeah. much bigger than I was prepared to see. Yeah. And if you talk to the people in the place, you probably did, um, were they aware this was going on, or uh, was this just something that was done subconsciously? Well, I think that, um, <laughs> you know, we expect that when we go, to, you know, again, your, your person on the street, we expect that when you go into an more open space, you'll have this vibrant discussion with everybody everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the reality of having to get work done, I, you, you I think you know it when you see a whole bunch of people wearing headphones. And, and in fact, yeah. mm-hmm. while I don't have the data I would want, and, and I have more studies coming, so stay tuned, but while I don't have this, the data I would want to be able to say what exactly the mechanism was, uh, one finding in the, in the world in which of management and organizational behavior, which we share, is that norms spread faster when spaces are open. Um, mm, yep. And, and mm-hmm. so I, I think right. there was probably a lot of quick recognition to your question that if I made a bunch of noise or if I opened the can of tuna, we're going to keep going back to that analogy, yeah. mm-hmm. um, that I get a bunch of glares. Mm-hmm. And so I learned pretty quickly. In fact, I learned a lot faster in an open space what it, what it means to work here, what the yeah. rules of the game are. Yeah, right, and the rules right. of the game were, right. shh, 
Yeah, it's like like a it like becomes a library, right? Uh, and, and uh, you know, I spent a lot of time living in Tokyo, so I point out to people, you know, just because there are a lot of people on the Tokyo subway doesn't mean people are talking to one another. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. So uh, it's a norm that develops, but the norm develops in predictable ways because you're trying not to disturb people because it's so easy to disturb people. And what's fascinating is, so since I wrote this article, all sorts of people have come out of the world work to talk about it. Yeah. But there are a number of interesting um, entrepreneurs out there. Patrick, um, it doesn't sound like his company does this, but um, who are trying to make this better. So I've, uh, I just actually earlier this week had lunch with two gentlemen at a place called Room in New York. Okay. They've literally created a high-quality phone booth for open space offices. Oh, no kidding. Um, hmm. And, hmm. I mean, it works well as a video conferencing booth. It works well as a phone booth. It has great ventilation. It's really quite comfortable. It has huh. soundproofing. So <laughs> now, if you want to make noise... The answer is go to a, go oh, to a really? room at the, mm. in the corner of the open office. Go go into which, the isolation chamber. And it might be actually, I mean, they've, they've sold a lot of these yeah. in the last 12 yeah. months they've been operating. Uh-huh. And that might be the answer, but it, the question then comes back to, is this what the designers of the open office had in mind? Right. I'm wondering about the phone booths. Are they uh, open? Can people see? Or is it also um, private in the sense that... Uh, Nobody's watching you. So three sides are closed, okay. um, and one side is the, the door that the door is glass, yeah, or okay. at least clear a uh, clear material. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, it'd be really interesting yeah. to start to see whether people want to camp out there, right? <laughs> they just sort of move their stuff into the phone booth. Uh, because they like it so much, right? Uh, yeah, really interesting. So do you think, uh, is there an ideal here? That is, we got an open office plan and a bunch of cubicles for people or a cubicle farm and a few open spots. Is there a compromise in between, you think, that uh, is going to be better than either extreme? Well, certainly the, I mean, again, I, I'm not an architect, um, architects are thinking about this a lot more than mm-hmm. I am. Yep. Um, but those that I talk to are certainly saying, look, you know, we've got activity-based spaces. We've got flexible spaces. We're trying to build um, new spaces that accommodate lots of different work behaviors, lots of different kinds of individuals. Um, that, all, of course, comes at a price. Um, and so, if anything, my hope is that the study will suggest that it might be worth spending the extra money to have, and, and the extra space to have spaces that work for multiple uses, yeah. not just for the, um, you know, the stacking in of people as close as possible. Yeah. Right. Uh, but but I think it's 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 ending up becoming. It's going to be a strategy. It's going to be it's going to have to be a choice that companies make, mm-hmm. and um, it's probably not just going to be the real estate manager. It might be the real estate manager, the senior executives, and and the HR people yeah. collaboratively make these decisions. So yep. that certainly seems to be the direction we're headed, if I do. I don't know. You, you're, you're talking to a lot of people. What, what do you hear? Uh, I just hear people complaining about them now. And I think um, what I hadn't realized about this, I'm, and you point out, is the extent to which for lots of companies this was a way to just do things cheaper. And, uh, you know, if we could bring back uh, a little bit of understanding of human behavior would probably be a really good thing in these organizations. So we'll hold our breath and see if we can make that happen. Ethan, we should let you go now. Thanks very much for being with us. Ethan Bernstein is a professor at the Harvard Business School. His new article is about open off spaces, and the title is The Impact of the Open Workspace on Human Collaboration. 
For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.